what Maccabee says, he's also going through the countryside, finding Hellenized Jews and forcibly circumcising them. I don't want you to think too much about that visual, but we're not talking about babies here. We're talking about adult Hellenized Jews. And somehow this makes it into one Maccabees and people don't bat an eyelash. Judah is hunting down Hellenized Jews to circumcise them. Now, that's very violent. Is that true? It could be, it couldn't be. But by the end of the second century BCE, you have a Jewish writer living in Judea who wants to put this in because he wants Jews reading his book to think about Judah Maccabee in that way. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In an essay entitled The Everlasting Hanukkah, which appears in the book of Rav Salvechik's essays on Hanukkah and Purim entitled Days of Deliverance, the Rav writes that Hanukkah is a holiday that has had a lot of luck. He says, everyone celebrates it. Everyone is glad to associate themselves with the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, be they half-Jews, whole Jews, assimilated Jews, atheists, agnostics, and even those who are Jew-haters. All are spiritually enriched by the holiday. Something about Hanukkah speaks to almost all of us. But that just highlights the fact that the message of Hanukkah retains enough ambiguity that different groups can understand it in different and even contradictory ways. This ambiguity goes back to the very earliest days of the holiday celebration, while the Second Temple still stood. It's reflected in rabbinic sources and our liturgy as well. And that, in turn, leads to a number of fascinating questions about what Hanukkah is really about when we look at it through an historical lens. Chazal famously asked, My Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah? And that question still needs to be answered today. That's why I was very excited and honored to host Dr. Malka Simkovich, who offered some fascinating insights about what happened before, during, and after the Maccabean Revolt. We discussed the story of Hanukkah, whether our sources for the Hanukkah story should be considered historical, and the associated question of what history meant to people living 2,000 years ago, the discrepancies between the stories presented in Masachet Shabbat and in 1 and 2 Maccabees, the false binary of emphasizing the miracle of the oil versus the military victory, how early Christians saw the Hasmoneans as Christian martyrs, and whether Al-Hanisim was written partially in response to that appropriation, why Chazal developed an ambivalent attitude toward the Hasmonean dynasty, what historical event in 63 BCE is widely ignored but changed the course of Jewish history, the different ways that Jews in Israel and in the diaspora understood Hanukkah, the concept of common Judaism, what mistaken message do too many people derive from Hanukkah, and more. And along the way, Dr. Simkovich also offers some tantalizing ideas about whether our sacred texts are actually describing history as we understand it, and why a more relaxed attitude towards that very question might be helpful for all Orthodox Jews today. We'll get to the interview momentarily. First, please share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. Join our team on Patreon. The link is in the description of this podcast.
Finally, everyone knows that the market for podcasts is growing every day and it's only getting bigger. If you listen to this podcast, you definitely have opinions. And if you have opinions or a growing business that is looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast too. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Dr. Malka Z. Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, and Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism, which received the 2019 AJL Judaica Reference Honor Award. Dr. Simkovich's articles have been published in academic journals such as the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism, and in mainstream publications such as the Jewish Review of Books and the Christian Century. She is involved in numerous interreligious dialogue projects, which help to increase understanding and friendship between Christians and Jews. Dr. Malka Simkovich, welcome once again to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. Malka, it's quite rare that I have a guest so close together, the same guest twice. But last time, as I told you off the air, and now I'm saying it again publicly, that was one of my all-time favorite episodes. If listeners have not yet heard our episode about Jewish-Catholic Dialogue, episode 131, I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. So again, thank you. It really is great to have you back. But this time we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about Hanukkah. And there's a lot to talk about. And I once heard you on the 1840 podcast mentioning, just as an aside, that Hanukkah is one of those holidays that you have a lot to say about, and there are things about it that you actually, you're bothered by them, the way it's celebrated in the contemporary world. So we're going to get to all of that. Let's open up, though, with talking about the story of Hanukkah, because I'm guessing that most of the listeners have a certain perception of what Hanukkah is about, that which was taught to us as we were kids in day school and Hebrew school. You're an historian of Second Temple Judaism. So as an historian, can you briefly outline the Hanukkah story as you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take you through every single event from between 538 BCE and 70 CE, the entire post-exilic Second Temple period. I'm just kidding. I will not. That's fantastic. This is going to be a long podcast. It's going to be many hours. (laughs) Um, I think it's more important to talk about what happens before Hanukkah than actually all the ins and outs of military conflict. And the reason why I think it's so important to talk about the historical backdrop to Hanukkah is because it clarifies the fact that this is not a conflict between all Jews and all Greeks, between Judaism and Hellenism. The Seleucid Empire is one of three big Hellenistic empires um, after Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire in 323 BCE and he dies without a will. His massive empire is split into three parts. And so when we're talking about Hanukkah, we're talking about a conflict that takes place between some Jews and some Greeks. By 175 BCE, when the rebellion takes place, the majority of Jews are actually not living in Judea. They're living all over the Hellenistic world, in North Africa, in Antioch, and of course, in Eastern regions of the empire. And we know that there were Jews who stayed in Babylonia, they stayed in Persia, and those Jews would become the ancestors of the rabbinic community. And so we have Jews who never returned to the land of Israel, even when they could. And I want Jews who listen to this podcast to really ask themselves, well, why does it take 150 years for the Jews to say, we're not okay with Hellenism? 
right? The world of Hellenism is not born in 176 BCE. It's born with Alexander the Great at the end of the fourth century BCE. And when Jews are living under other rulers and other kingdoms, especially under the Ptolemaic, the Egyptian Greeks, things are fine. I'm not going to say they're always perfect or without conflict, but certainly you don't have anyone interpreting these conflicts as what we would call religious or existential or somehow threatening the survival of Judaism. Judaism is not really a word that was used at the time, by the way. Um, why does this happen in 175? Why didn't it happen in 250? Um, and the reason is, is because after many disputes over control of Judea between the Seleucid Greeks in Syria and the Ptolemaic Greeks in Egypt, Judea finally falls under control of the Seleucid Empire in 200 BCE. And that's when the trouble begins, because the way that the Seleucids run their empire and their conquests is very, very different than the tolerant sort of laissez-faire attitude that you see uh, when it comes to the rule of the Ptolemaic Greeks. Uh, from the perspective of, of the Ptolemies, if you pay your taxes and you participate um, in our armed conflicts and supply us with soldiers, we're going to leave you alone to serve your ancestral god in your local temple. They didn't really care as far as we know. But the Seleucid Greeks were very, very different because there's no distinction between politics and religion in the ancient world. So for them, the Jewish devotion to their ancestral laws was a political statement that was intolerable hmm. because they interpreted the Jews' devotion to their ancestral law as a refusal to fully integrate and support the needs of the Seleucid Empire. I'm not justifying Antiochus for Epiphanes. I'm not saying he was a very nice guy, but it was a different approach to how to treat these conquests. Um, and so that's not specific or inherent to Hellenism. It's a feature that's specific to the Seleucid Empire. So, Malka, I'm a little bit confused because you mentioned the number 175, 176, and I've always understood that the story of Hanukkah happened about 10 years later, around 165, 164, 162 BCE. So which is it? Yeah, so just to clarify, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Antiochus that we're familiar with, becomes ruler of the Seleucid Greek kingdom in 175, and then shortly afterwards begins to uh, issue these prohibitive edicts against the Jews of Judea. The temple, the Beit HaMikdash, is restored in around 164 BCE. And actually, according to 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees, the conflict doesn't really end with the restoration of the temple. It continues for a number of years. Uh, so what we celebrate is not really the end of the conflict, it's the restoration of the temple. You know, I have so many questions I want to ask you, Malka, but you mentioned one Maccabees and two Maccabees right now. As best as I know, again, knowing really nothing about it, I understand that those are our best semi-contemporaneous sources of what happened. Can they be considered historical or not? I love that question, historical, because we have this very post-Enlightenment idea that something is either fiction or nonfiction. Either it's all true or it's not true. Even going to libraries now with my kids annoys me because this was not a conceivable way of thinking in the ancient world. Even historians wrote hagiographically, which means that they were not embarrassed to make up speeches and put those speeches in the mouths of their heroes. Josephus did this all the time. Uh, for example, when he retells the story of Masada, he has the leader, um, Elazar, utter this beautiful speech. Now, of course, Josephus was not there. 
he knew his readers were not dumb and he knew that this these were flourishes but he's imagining what this great hero would have said uh, to inspire these jews to um commit suicide so today we would scoff at that and say how dare you where's your integrity you're making things up that's just not how even historians in the ancient world thought and so they did not hesitate to add flourishes to their texts uh, when you're dealing with a work like one maccabees and two maccabees you can't say it's all true or it all goes in the garbage uh, you can talk about the polemical interests of each book and where they insert their own imaginings uh, but they also do have historical value that said one maccabees is taken i would guess i don't like to say it this way but more seriously as an archival document by academics. It was produced originally in Hebrew by someone who worked from within the Hasmonean court, whose goal was to legitimize and valorize the Hasmonean family in the late second century BCE at a time when they were coming under fire from their own people for being corrupt or leading the people astray and assimilating into Hellenistic life. So one Maccabees is quite focused on the heroism uh, and the legitimacy of the Hasmonean family. It's clearly written by someone who knew the terrain of the land of Israel intimately when he says, oh, for the distance from this city to that city is X amount of, uh, you know, of a stadia, or I don't remember the measurement of distance he uses, but generally those geographic details are accurate. He knows mm -hmm. the terrain, he knows the topography. The author of Two Maccabees, is a totally different um, thinker and also has different motivation. Again, that doesn't mean the text is without historical value, but he was not an eyewitness to the conflict, has little interest in legitimizing the Hasmonean family, was writing in a gorgeous Greek, probably came from one of the regions, the Jewish communities of North Africa, like Cyrene, which is in modern day Libya. And this Jew, isn't bothered by the fact that he wasn't an eyewitness to the conflict because he had heard enough about the story to be able to convey a version of the tale that celebrates God's ongoing intervention with the Jewish people. That's what he's interested in. So if you look at two Maccabees, you'll find miracles and you'll find theology, you'll find speeches, you'll find um, a level of divine involvement that you just don't find in one Maccabee. So two Maccabees is a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, you can't necessarily read it for its um, historical accuracy when it comes to the war. But again, the writer is using historical or archival sources. So these questions are very, very difficult. I wouldn't say um, that it's all fiction or all nonfiction. But you have to think about the historical context in which the author is writing and what is motivating them to produce their work. Okay, then I'm going to ask a question that I wasn't planning on asking, but as long as you raise it, this is something which I've thought about for a long time. So now, now that I have you here already in the subject, in terms of getting into the mindsets of ancient historians as they consider themselves, people like Josephus or the author of One Maccabees, since they were adding flourishes and that was considered okay, from their perspective, did they even have a conception of not adding flourishes? In other words, everybody did that. Why wouldn't someone have said, I'm going to write it without any flourishes? I know we can't really get into the mindset of somebody who lived over 2,000 years ago, but as best as we understand, why didn't they, so to speak, write history the way we understand it as true nonfiction to the best of their ability? Yeah, I mean, I don't know of any Roman historian who writes what we would call objective history. That just was not a thing. 
So, you know, we talk about Christian hagiography. What does that mean? It means they're writing about people in their own religious tradition in a way that would encourage the reader to be inspired and pursue piety. Everyone did it. It wasn't considered, um, like I said, corrupt or inauthentic. These stories were meant to inspire. And if you would be more inspired by a speech that the writer inserted, well, you know what? It's not, it's not just that that was considered acceptable. It's that 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 was a showing off on the part of the writer that was meant to impress the reader. So the reader would not have said, how dare this writer make up the speech? He would have said, wow, what a brilliant uh, and articulate and elegant speech that the author has provided me with to imagine uh, the leader of Masada um, saying these words to his people, how inspiring. He really enhanced the story for me. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. They're not thinking, well, is it true? And I don't think that they read their scriptures that way either. We're agonizing these days over did the revelation happen. I don't need to get into theology with you, but we're agonizing over whether the exodus happened exactly the way the story tells us. You don't see angst about that in the second temple period. You don't really see angst. I'm not a rabbinic literature scholar, but I would venture to say you don't see angst in rabbinic midrash about the historicity of the Exodus. It's just not an interesting question. And I wish one day it will once again not be an interesting question. Okay. So we'll have you back to talk about that a different time, Malka, because that is huge, but it'll take us far afield. So already this is worth the price of the podcast. What you just said this is so interesting. Since you mentioned rabbinic literature, now let's talk a little bit about rabbinic literature as opposed to some of the sources you mentioned, one Maccabees and two Maccabees. The most obvious rabbinic literature about Hanukkah from the time of Chazal are three or four dapim in Masachet Shabbat, starting from page 21a, 21b, Kafalaf and Mudalaf and Amud Bet. That's where it says, my Hanukkah, and it tells the story in brief about what Hanukkah is, along with the laws of Hanukkah. Are there some very major discrepancies between what the rabbinic sources from as early rabbinic sources as we have, how they speak about Hanukkah, as opposed to what our earliest non-rabbinic sources say about Hanukkah? And I realize I might be getting into a problem because you described two Maccabees as perhaps, I'm going to say this, a pseudo-rabbinic source, maybe. I don't know if that's the right term. I'm throwing that out there for you now. Yeah, I've come to, um, I've undergone a revolution, not a revolution, an evolution of my own when it comes to this question, because 10 years ago, I would have said, well, yes, you do see a marked shift between how Second Temple writers speak about the story and rabbinic writers. And, you know, the broad binary that we often hear about is that the Second Temple Jews were interested in the military conflict. And then you see some shift in the early rabbinic period and the rabbis start talking about the miracle. Of course, in the My Hanukkah passage, the miracle of the oil, and they emphasize and highlight the miraculous intervention of God that saved the Jewish people. And the standard explanation for that is that the rabbis had a lot of anxiety about um, celebrating a coup celebrating a rebellion against a very powerful host government in light of the catastrophic results of Jewish rebellion that took place in the first and early second centuries. The rabbis were very sensitive to the, these catastrophic events, and you can easily trace an anxiety and even a resistance towards messianism in early rabbinic literature that says, Ad Khan, you know, enough, the famous story of someone saying to Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Akiva saying, oh, look, there goes Bar Kokhba. Maybe he is the Messiah. And Yochanan ben Torta says, Akiva, 
Weeds will grow out of your cheeks before the Mashiach comes. When pigs fly, get over it. Again, we don't care. It's not an interesting question to us because it leads to behavior that can um, bring catastrophe upon us. And so the standard explanation for this difference is that the rabbis, I wouldn't go so far as to say they were pacifists, but they certainly did not want to incite rebellion. They wanted to learn uh, and, and, and develop a system that accommodated the reality of their occupation. That said, over the past, I don't know, seven or eight years, I've started to pay more attention to rabbinic texts that do speak about the military conflict. And the more you look, the more you see. My Hanukkah and that passage in Shabbos gets a lot of FaceTime, but there are other rabbinic texts that also speak about Hanukkah in a way that does foreground the military victory. And so I'm no longer comfortable with this binary. And I do think it's a very interesting question to ask not why did the rabbis ignore the military victory, but why do they allow it to stay in, knowing what had happened with Rome in 66 to 73 and 115 to 118 and 132 to 135, right? All these conflicts. And yet rabbinic writers are actually not expunging these passages about the military victory. And so you have Megillah Ta'anit, that famous list of all the dates upon which you cannot fast. And uh, it says on the 25th of the month of uh, is Hanukkah uh, of Kislev, and that's eight days on which one does not eulogize. And we have a commentary um, to this Megillah Ta'anit called the Skolion that explains why Jews do not fast on these dates. And the Skolion goes into extensive description about the military victory. And you have parallels to that passage in Pesikta Rabati. And so, and Al-Hanisim, right, does not shy away from the military conflict. And what's very interesting about these passages is that it's arguable that there's an attempt to merge the thread that treats the story as a, as a miracle and the thread that treats the story as a military victory. And so uh, in the Skolion and in Pesikta Rabati, we are provided very interesting detail which is that when the Hashmanaim, I mean, I could just read it to you. I don't know if you want me to read it in Hebrew or English. Do you have a preference? No, please go. Okay. Why do you light on Hanukkah? Like when they were victorious, they go into the temple. So they find eight um, iron spears, right? So that's like a weird detail. In other words, they're using weapons to fashion together a menorah for the temple the okay so they um are putting candles or i don't know i mean they wouldn't have been wax but they're making these light fixtures out of spears what does this tradition tell us well it tells us that there were weapons left over that are lying around the temple from the conflict Right. Rather than coming in and saying, we need to erase any memory that there was a war here, the miracle that takes place takes place within the context of the reality of the war. So I think that that's a really interesting detail. And it appears more than once in rabbinic texts, using the weapons themselves to fashion a menorah. And you have another text known as Mikilat Antiochus. Uh, very hard to date this text, but Mikilat Antiochus is another. I wouldn't say apocryphal, but it's a non-canonical text 
that retells the story, what sources it has is also unclear. Did the, uh, did the writer have one Maccabees, two Maccabees? But in any case, again, if the story goes on and on and on about the military victories of the Hashmonaim. So if you put it all together, Kasik the Rabati and the Skolion and Miguel Antiochus and Anisim, you have a very compelling compendium of rabbinic memories that foreground the military conflicts. Well, can I ask you a question about that, though? Do we know that these post-date the rebellion against Rome? Or is it possible that something like Al-Hanisim is from an earlier period? That's a really good question. Again, I only have an opinion on this based on the scholarship that I have read, so I can tell you the consensus. And the consensus is that these do not date to the late Second Temple period, but they're early rabbinic. Now, Al-Hanisim, actually, I want to go hear my... Uh, Professor from Brandeis, Ruben Kimmelman, who's going to be giving a talk next week on uh, possible Second Temple literary origins for Alanisim. But traditionally, as far as I know, I haven't heard the talk yet, but traditionally that's considered a sixth or seventh century text. Oh, okay. As far as I know, somebody might hear this podcast and say, Malka Simkovich is totally off, but I'm talking to you not about my own analyses. I'm talking to you about the scholarship that I've read. I mean, I guess then we could ask the reverse question. Why doesn't it talk about the miracle of the oil if it's such a late text? In other words, it seems like if I understand properly, and I want to ask you about that binary between the miracle of the oil versus the military victory. On the one hand, we see this shift, as you're saying, perhaps perhaps emphasizing, although you said maybe not 100% as you might have once thought, but shifting more towards the miraculous element rather than the victorious military element. But on the other hand, if Al-Hanisim is a late text, there, it doesn't mention the oil at all. It has an oblique reference by mentioning they lit candles, but it doesn't say anything about a miracle of the oil lasting eight days. Okay, so here's my theory. And I really don't like looking at a rabbinic text or a set of texts saying, this is weird, and then answering the question about its weirdness by saying, oh, they must be responding to Christians. It's really lazy. It happens too much. But in this case, I think it is a strong possibility. And here's why. By the third century or fourth century, the church fathers are claiming the story of the Hasmoneans as a proto-Christian story. And it becomes a very powerful story in Christian literature. You even have a synagogue in Antioch in modern day Syria that is converted into a church and it's called the Ashmuni church, the, Ash the Hashmonai church, essentially tradition in the Greek Orthodox Greek Orthodox Church was that that church was built over the bones of the Hasmonean martyrs. And they're called Hasmonean martyrs. And in fact, church fathers were writing homilies about the Maccabees. And so you have the church father Gre Gregory of Nazianzus, who in a very long homily basically argues that the Hasmoneans were believers in, you know, I really don't like to say C-H-R-I-S-T anymore because I get so much flack from everyone oh, i'm so, sorry <laughs> not just from your podcast i'm going to say jesus but really listeners i want you to know i'm talking about christ because of the messianic element when i say jesus you might think the human mortal but i'm talking about how jesus was perceived as a messianic divine figure so i say jesus you hear christ thank you Got everybody it. okay Look that in mind <laughs> It's like a control R, control replace. Like every time you say Jesus, you know what to think. Okay, now that's my very from my very pious sort of caveat. Okay, so Gregory of Nazianzus is saying these Maccabees believed in Jesus. Consider what they, and now I'm quoting, 
consider what they whose martyrdom preceded Jesus's, he doesn't say Jesus, passion would have achieved if they had been persecuted after the time of Jesus and were able to emulate his death on our behalf. So in other words, he's saying that they were so pious that they believed in Jesus before Jesus showed up, but imagine how much, how amazing they could have been if they had lived after 32 CE. And he says, not one of those who attained perfection before the, the coming of Jesus accomplished his goal without faith in Jesus. That's striking. And in fact, John Chrysostom, the fourth century uh, Bishop of Antioch, says the same exact thing in a set of homilies called Homilies on the Maccabean Martyrs. It was a very popular Christian trope. And he says, I don't hesitate to count the Hasmoneans and the mother and her seven sons that becomes Hannah in the medieval period with the other Christian martyrs, he says. But I declare that they're even more brilliant. Why? And now I'm quoting again, for they competed at a time when the bronze gates had not been shattered, right? The, the gates of you know, Judaism, I guess, um, sort of holding everyone away from the truth. Uh -huh. When things still ruled and the curse flourished and the devil's citadel stood and the path of this kind of virtue was as yet untrodden. And so the mother and her seven sons and all the Hasmoneans are better than the Christian martyrs because they acted the way they did in opposition to Judaism. And, and they, they believed in Jesus before there was a Jesus. So, right. wow, they were really uh, true martyrs. You even have you even have Greek Orthodox, Syriac Orthodox liturgy that talks about the Hashmonaim. And so the Syriac Orthodox Church had a daily liturgy that talked about the mother and her seven sons. And it's a beautiful poem. I have it right here. She says, and they recited this every day, of the seven of my triumphant sons, says, and she's called Ashmuni, which is, of course, related to Hashmonaim, says, Ashmuni to the king, I will give away none to serve under you. I give them to God. They are his servants. So the mother is named Ashmuni, and she, she says, God save me from the king Antiochus. He slaughters my son as lambs and pounces on me like a lion. So this is very powerful. And also Ephraim, the church father, and also Afraha. I mean, it is so prominent. Somehow the Hashmonaim become Christian martyrs. It is very unlikely that in a city like, um, like Antioch, where you have rabbis and you have early Christians, or even in the Galilee, where you have rabbis interacting with early Christians, it's very unlikely that this did not get back to the rabbis, that the Christians are serving their Jesus um, in spaces that are purported to be built on the bones of the Hashmonaim. This would have been untenable, of course, to conservators of the Jewish tradition. And so I really resist it when scholars say, oh, look, here's another weird thing that the rabbis did. It must be the Christians. In this case, I am compelled. They had a feast of the Hasmoneans every year, a feast, a holiday, celebrating it. I mean, the Christians did. Christians, they didn't call it Hanukkah, uh, but it was called the Feast of the Hasmoneans. And uh, I think it's still celebrated in some Orthodox Christian communities today. Okay, so what does this all mean? Well, the rabbis have a job to do. They need to claim, forget the miracles, because the, the Christians are not talking about the miracle of the oil, but they're familiar mm -hmm. with one and two Maccabees because that ends up in their scriptural tradition. It's in the Apocrypha. So they're reading one Maccabees as scripture. They're reading two Maccabees as scripture. They know the stories of the military conflict. And so the rabbis come and say, hey, guess what, buddy? Those are our stories. And that's part of our narrative. And so it ends up back in later rabbinic tradition. And I think that it is a way of reclaiming these stories as clearly an affirmation of the covenantal, the covenantal promises that God made to the Jewish people. So... I don't think that the rabbis want to treat these two traditions as distinct by the fifth or sixth century, by the time you get my Hanukkah. The two traditions of the war and the oil. Exactly. Exactly. 
I, I don't think, I think you see an effort um, at syncretism to make this all part of one story. It was a military conflict. It was, it was guided by God who at times um, miraculously affirmed um, his commitment to the Jewish people. So that's one, that's one story. That's really fascinating. I obviously never heard that before. Let me ask, maybe this is pure speculation and you'll say we have no way of knowing. There is a well-known tradition that Chazal had an ambiguous, uh, ambivalent perhaps relationship with Hanukkah. And it's often explained in terms of, well, the Hashmonaim were illegitimate kings because they were Kohanim. And therefore, maybe it could be that people from the house of David were upset with them. They never should have taken the kingship. Is it possible that there might be, I'm not saying that's not true, but is it possible that the unspoken ambivalence is really about Christological usurpation of the holiday and they kind of wanted to downplay Hanukkah as a result? Or is that not valid speculation, in your opinion? It's very hard to say because the fact is, is that by the end of the second century BCE, you do have Hasmonean kings who are making life very hard for the Pharisees, the antecedents of the rabbis. And so you do have very powerful evidence, mostly from Josephus, that figures, especially Alexander Yanai, Alexander Janaeus, uh, who Josephus says crucified 800 Pharisees before their wives and children. Um, and so you have these stories about this, you know, terrible guy who happens to be a Hellenizer. Um, so, you know, is, is it is it this or is it that? No, I think it's both. I think that uh, the Hasmoneans especially starting from the late second century BCE, more than their Hellenization are blamed by later Jews for dropping the ball and losing monarchic independence. The fact that this infighting leads to Roman occupation is unforgivable. It's not simply, I think we make a mistake by saying the rabbis hated Alexander Yanai, they hated these later Hasmonean kings because they were Hellenized. Rabbis weren't, you know, they wanted everyone to have the freedom to worship their ancestral laws, but they weren't utterly intolerant. What's unforgivable is that this infighting weakened the monarchy and basically was an invitation to Rome to show up in 63 BCE and sack Jerusalem. The sack of Jerusalem in 63 BCE is an unknown major catastrophe that we don't really commemorate or talk about. But it was a massive disaster because with the sack of Jerusalem, Roman occupation begins. And that's unforgivable. Again, the way that it happens is that Alexander Yanai's two sons, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, basically enter into a civil war with one another, fighting over control of the kingdom. Had they agreed uh, on some sort of power sharing or uh, one conceded to the other, you could argue that the Romans would not have shown up, but what they both do is something very stupid. They appeal to Rome for support. Now, what is Rome going to do? We have this tiny little kingdom, Judea. Should I support Aristobulus or should I support Hyrcanus? Like this joke or that joke? Of course they were going to come in and occupy Judea. Of course. It's a trade route. It's in the center of the world. It's a port, many ports. There's no way that they were going to support Aristobulus, who naively thought that because he was a little more Hellenized, that Hyrcanus would be pushed out. It wasn't going to happen. So rabbinic memory is very harsh on these people. And it's not just because they weren't separating the meat and the milk dishes. That's amazing. I actually read that story yesterday 
in preparing for this podcast, I was going through your wonderful book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, and I was reading about their inviting in the Romans and how terrible that was for, the, for Jewish history. Now, does that mean that, historically speaking, and again, I go back to the fact that the Ramban was very against this whole idea of kings were Kohanim, and the Rambam seems not to mind it at all. He says the fact that there was a kingship was a good thing. At that time, was that simply not an issue that was read later on back into it, as far as you know? Or did they actually, as far as you know, did people mind and say, how could we have kings who are not from Malchut Beit David, from the tribe of Judah? It's a really interesting question. I don't see criticism of taking on both roles, the priest and the king, uh, the kingship in Second Temple sources. I don't see it in one Maccabees, and that was produced also two Maccabees. These were produced by Jews who observed Shabbat, dietary law, circumcision. I don't see even a hint of criticism. Um, I would have to really pour through Josephus. Maybe someone, again, listening to this podcast knows that there's somewhere in Josephus where he critiques uh, one individual taking on both roles. As far as I know, that doesn't show up until the rabbinic period. Speaking about the Hellenization of the Hashbonaim, of the Hasmonean kings, I want to ask you about what that means exactly, because growing up, I'd always learned, I think many of our listeners have learned the same, which is that they started off as righteous kings. These are the Maccabim, you know, fighting for Judaism. And later on, the Malchut, the kingship, the dynasty descended into wickedness. Now, again, speaking historically, did they start off fundamentally different as non-Hellenizers or were they semi-Hellenized from the beginning? What do we know about the early kings? Did things change drastically in their attitude towards Greek culture or did perhaps Judaism, so to speak, change in its attitude and therefore they might have stayed the same, but as the Pharisees or the future rabbis had a more negative attitude towards that Greek culture, they saw that what was actually the same thing as being a negative. It's really hard to know. We don't have, it's an it's a fantastic question. We don't have, of course, the literature produced by Judah and his father, Madidao, and his brothers. We only have the interpretations. Now, one Maccabees would be our best source to tell us what Yehuda was doing. And one Maccabee says he is way more focused on his enemy, the Jews, than his enemy, Antiochus. What I mean by that, of course, he's fighting a war against the Seleucid Greeks. But one Maccabee says he's also going through the countryside, finding Hellenized Jews and forcibly circumcising them. I don't want you to think too much about that visual, but we're not talking about babies here. We're talking about adult Hellenized Jews. And somehow this makes it into one Maccabees and people don't bat an eyelash. Judah is hunting down Hellenized Jews to circumcise them. Now, that's very violent. Is that true? It could be, it couldn't be. But by the end of the second century BCE, you have a Jewish writer living in Judea who wants to put this in because he wants Jews reading his book to think about Judah Maccabee in that way. And so I think it could have been that something was going on among Jews that was very violent. And scholars do think that this early period, the early second century BC, is the period in which we see the rise of sectarianism. So there's no question that there is intra-Jewish conflict and that a lot of that conflict, and we see this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, concerns the question of the degree to which the Jews should actively engage with the um, the world of, of Hellenism. Again, Hellenism is not really a word that was used. We find it in two Maccabees, but we don't find it in other Jewish sources. Um, and so, yes, there's intra-Jewish conflict. Now, what was the primary cause of the war? Was it the intra-Jewish conflict? Was it the clash with the Seleucids? Of course, it was both. 
because just like in 66 CE, Judea was a tinderbox. There was so much tension in that region that the slightest conflict with an outside source was going to engulf the entire uh, the entire region in flames. You've sort of already answered this question in everything that we've been discussing until now, Malka, but I want to still ask about misconceptions regarding Hanukkah. Obviously, we've mentioned many of them. At the same time, there's nothing inherently in what you've said which goes against our common story. We could summarize it and still say that my Hanukkah, they went into the temple, they found the oil lit for eight days, there was a war against the Seleucid Empire, and so forth. Nothing about what you've said so far casts doubt per se on any of those stories until now. Maybe we could say it's an incomplete story, but there's still a lot more to be said about them. And once again, leaving aside the fact that history as we understand it now may not have been how or was not how they understood history back then. So what are some of the more common misconceptions about Hanukkah? Not just things that are incomplete, but things that we misunderstand about Hanukkah. Well, I think like I said at the very beginning of our conversation, it is important on the one hand not to dismiss the story and say, well... It isn't correct. I can't believe in a miracle that lasted for eight days or somehow the sources that talk about Hanukkah are not legitimate. Putting all that aside, the, the most important thing to understand here is that the majority of Jews are not immediately affected by the story, however it happened. Um, the majority of Jews are not living in the vicinity of the Jerusalem temple or even of Judea. And I've said this many times, so I apologize to anyone who's heard me say this on another podcast. It's really irresponsible to make a binary that's geographic or linguistic. It's really irresponsible to say authentic Judaism was practiced by Jews in the land of Israel and Hellenized Judaism was practiced in the diaspora or authentic Judaism was practiced by Hebrew speakers and corrupted Judaism was practiced by Greek speakers. Just like today, you have observant Jews in New York and you have assimilated, I don't like that word, but assimilated Jews in Tel Aviv. So too, you cannot make any sort of binary between where a Jew lived and what language they spoke and the kind of Judaism that they practiced. And so when we dissolve that diasporic boundary and recognize that there were God-fearing Jews in, let's say, Alexandria, and there were Hellenized Jews in Jerusalem, and you even have evidence that in the early second century BC, you have very pious Jews like Onias, who's a priest, escaping Judea for his life because Hellenized Jews are trying to kill him, and Onias ends up in Egypt. When you dissolve the, the diasporic boundaries, you can understand that when the story travels, and it travels very fast, Jews all over the world are asking, is this a story that impacts me and my understanding of my own identity? And the answer that they come to ultimately is yes. This is not a story simply of God telling Jews who are in Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple, great job, keep it up, I have your back. But it's a story that diasporan Jews are hearing and ultimately they say, this is a story that affirms God's covenantal promises to every single Jew and it has something to do with me. And because the story travels and diasporan Jews are hearing it the way that they're hearing it, Hanukkah becomes a holiday that every Jew tells in a way that makes it relevant to them. And that's why the Judaism versus Hellenism binary is compelling. Because otherwise, how do you make it about every Jew? So I think the trick with Hanukkah is to say, this is a story that is meaningful for every Jew. But that doesn't compel us to say that Judaism, whatever Judaism is, 
is an existential conflict with Hellenism. And again, these were two artificial binaries uh, or, or one, it's one artificial binary, two categories that are problematic. Just like if somebody were to say to me, are you an American or a Jew? It would be a confusing question because these are not binaries in my identity. But of course, my Jewish self is much more, um, much more endemic to who I am and important than my American identity. But they're, they're not separate and they're not conflicting. Jews in the diaspora were proud Jews. They openly observed their Judaism. There was not a sense of shame in it. They weren't on the way to inevitable assimilation. And they believed that the story of Hanukkah was not a condemnation of diaspora in life, but in fact, an act of comfort that God bestowed upon all Jews. Well, then, were there different ways they understood Hanukkah in Israel and in the diaspora? And maybe I'll even say in maybe southern Israel and Judea and the northern Galilee regions also, even though they all accepted Hanukkah, as you said, it's not a binary like that. At the same time, though, it might have been meaningful to them in different kinds of ways. Someone living in Jerusalem might have seen this as an affirmation of the temple, whereas somebody in the diaspora might have seen it in a very different way. Precisely. And that produces fascinating tension in ancient, um, in late Second Temple literature. We have at the beginning of two Maccabees, you can go online um, and you can search two Maccabees chapter one. You're not going to find the story of two Maccabees. You're going to find two ancient letters that were written by Judean leaders in Jerusalem to Jews living in Egypt. And sometime in the early uh, first century BCE, an editor or a scribe who was copying the book of two Maccabees had access to these letters. And he decided to open up his book by including these letters as a kind of introduction to the story of two Maccabees. So anyone who opens up two Maccabees today, chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse 18, these are two ancient letters. The first 10, the first 10 verses is one letter and the rest of that is a second letter that seems to be authentic. At least the first one for sure is authentic. That's there's academic consensus on that. But these are two documents written as letters from Jerusalem leaders to Jews in Egypt. And they're saying, you need to celebrate Hanukkah. They don't call Hanukkah. One text calls it the tabernacle's holiday because they thought of it as Sukkot in the winter. And the second document calls it the day of purification uh, or the holiday of purification. But in any case, the central idea in these letters is that you have to celebrate Hanukkah in a way that affirms Judean exceptionalism, in a way that affirms the unique role of the Beit HaMikdash, and in a way that affirms the authority of the administrators of the Beit HaMikdash. And we have no evidence that diasporan Jews were interested in that meaning of Hanukkah. It seems that they celebrated Hanukkah, but not necessarily to affirm uh, the centrality of Judea, but rather to affirm God's love for each and every Jew. And so you're absolutely right that this produces a tension uh, between diaspora and Judean Jewry. That's really interesting. Let me ask you about something else you said. This might be a small point, but the fact that it wasn't called Hanukkah, and yet in rabbinic literature, my Hanukkah, we all call it Hanukkah, and there are explanations about why it's actually called Hanukkah, Hanukkah, dedication, etc. And yet in the letters you mentioned in 2 Maccabees, it wasn't called Hanukkah at all. So where did that name come from? I mean, the short answer is that we have absolutely no idea. But we do know uh, one of the most interesting things about Hanukkah is that it has so many different names. The first letter uh, in the first letter preserved in 2 Maccabees, again, refers to it as uh, the the Days of Tabernacle, because presumably when the Jews did not have access 
um, to the temple. They could not keep the holiday Sukkot. That was the most recent holiday that they had missed. So they, they keep Sukkot when they can. And I know there are all kinds of allusions to Zachariah and associations between Sukkot and the winter solstice. So I'm not going to get into any of that. Uh, but the Jews were likely aware of some kind of association from their own scriptural tradition. Fine. Uh, so we have days of tabernacles. We have the second letter that says the purification. We have Hanukkah. We also have Josephus who says very fascinatingly that, uh, and this is again, this is the 90s CE. And he says, we call this holiday the holiday of lights, which could interestingly point to an ancient source of a miracle associated with fire. But Josephus says, I don't know why we call it that. And then he kind of makes up a smushy, explanation oh well we were in darkness and we were in danger and then god provided us light by saving us and you can say that about any single holiday on the <laughs> Jewish calendar so it's not compelling now what that tells us is that by the end of the first century ce the tradition associating hanukkah with light is already very very ancient because if it got to Josephus, but he doesn't know the reason for calling the holiday lights, then you're talking about a very, very ancient tradition, which again tells me that maybe there could have been a miracle that was associated with fire or with light. When there is dispute like this, tabernacle, purification, lights, Hanukkah, that points to weak transmission, right? When there's weak transmission, weak transmission, right? When there's argument over the name of a holiday or over its meaning, that weakens the strength of the tradition of the transmission. So the fact that we have all these different explanations suggests that there's dispute over the meaning of the holiday. What do we call it? And why do we call it that? And how are we interpreting the significance of what happened? The fact that we have multiple traditions and those traditions are, are transmitted in a weak manner, right? Hanukkah is referred to as Hanukkah very late. And Josephus doesn't even have the whole story for us, right? So that tells us that behind this very weak transmission, there is robust debate about what to do with this holiday. That's so interesting because earlier you mentioned that Hanukkah spread very fast throughout the Jewish world, both inside and outside of Israel. But it could be, perhaps, that while the holiday spread quickly, the meaning and the interpretation of the holiday remained up for debate and that had a much weaker transmission. So that raises something which I find interesting, which is that in Masechet Shabbat, it says in describing the Mai Hanukkah, how they decided what to do about it, they said, Lashana Acheret a different year, or perhaps the following year. I'm not sure exactly what Lashana Acheret means. It means that, I'll just to explain what I'm referring to, in that Breitah that talks about what Hanukkah is, it tells the story of the oil, and then a different year, they establish these as days of Hallel and so forth. So what is, historically speaking, Lashana Acheret? When did Hanukkah become a thing? Do we know? So this is the question. Is the letter, the first two letters that are appended to Maccabees, are they implying that Judean leaders worry that not all diaspora Jews are keeping the holiday? So they're saying, keep the holiday and here's why. Or are they saying, you're keeping the holiday, but you're keeping it for the wrong reasons and you're misinterpreting it? So this is very hard to track. We simply don't have the diaspora evidence to know who was keeping it and when and where and how many. The story is spreading and we can assume safely that two Maccabees, which is a diasporan work, was a very popular work because it comes down to us. Maybe the same goes for one Maccabees as well, which is more of a formal archival work um, that was probably commissioned or sanctioned by the Hasmonean family themselves. The point is, is that I do think that it was spreading fast because we have the literature about it. 
again, one Maccabees, two Maccabees, Josephus. And then of course, so powerful in the very early uh, Christian tradition. But the question of the, the question that's less interesting to me is not the rate at which it's spreading through the Hellenistic world, but the ways in which different Jews are making the holiday applicable to themselves and their own lives. And there, I think you really can find pretty strong evidence for tension that um, my personal approach would be to say, Judeans know that diaspora Jews are starting to keep the holiday, but they're misunderstanding the meaning. So the Shana Acheret, I think, would it could point to the fact that it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like in 163 BC, every diasporan community is keeping Hanukkah. It is a process. It's happening, I would say, very fast. But by that, I mean, you know, by the end of the second century BCE. Okay. Uh, very fast doesn't mean a, a year. It's still a process. There was no social media as far as we know. No Twitter. Right. I want to ask you about something that you wrote in your the book again, Discovering Second Temple Literature. And I know I'm going to be entering into somewhat controversial territory over here, but I think it's important to discuss. When you talk about common Judaism, you talk about the Judaism perhaps of the people. This is not necessarily the Judaism that um, we would associate with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or these sectarian groups that existed or maybe only existed later on. First of all, what is common Judaism? And who kept that? I don't think this is controversial personally. Um, we know from Josephus that the numbers of sectarian Jews in the first century was quite small. 6,000 Pharisees, 4,000 Sadducees, and 3,000 Essenes. It could have been even less. Of course, Josephus is not walking around uh, Judea taking a census. Uh, so these are his best guesses. But if you're going to assume that there are 6,700,000 Jews in Judea, this is a very, very tiny population. Now, they do have public roles. Josephus says that the Pharisees were very well known and had um, a lot of influence over the masses. But yes, your average Jew, especially outside the land of Israel, where we don't have any evidence really of sectarianism, these Jews were practicing um, what I call the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice, which is Shabbat, circumcision, and dietary law. And then the big icing on the cake, which is they were coming together regularly to read their scriptures and interpret them. Uh, they were going uh, to synagogues and doing that concurrently with uh, the temple standing. And so that was what your average Jew did. And um, I think it's a real mistake to uh, characterize the second temple period as sectarian when 99.9% .9 of the Jews simply were not. Uh, what did it mean to keep Shabbat or Kashrut? Well, something probably that was a lot less complicated than what we do now, but maybe something that you could characterize as proto-rabbinic in the sense that there are interpretations, legal discussions that are developing at this time. We have some of those from the Dead Sea Scroll Library. Um, and so we know that there's, you know, I am not going to use the word halakha, but we know that there are discussions about practice and there is a degree of inconsistency from community to community. But it's important to remember that somehow the Jews managed to maintain a cohesive global mindset that by participating in these laws and, and reading the same text and interpreting them, they were part of a global Jewish community and somehow they managed to maintain cohesion, which is really remarkable. So in the story, as we understand it, when the Seleucid Greeks attempted to undermine Judaism, what is that thing they were trying to undermine? What did they not want Jews to do anymore? Was it simply temple worship or were they trying to undermine Shabbat? And what did that even mean? Jews have to work on Shabbat? Like what exactly were they trying to do if, once again, if the common Judaism of the time was much simpler than 
what we understand today as like Shabbat, the dietary laws of Kashrut. What exactly were the Greeks trying, or this lucid empire, what were they trying to do to Jews? Well, there was a lot at stake by observing these laws, because if you were to keep Shabbat, um, then you were not going to participate in every public festival celebrating the gods. And that would have made you a bad Greek. And if you were uh, keeping dietary law, that meant, and this, the Christians, of course, lambasted Jews for this, that meant that you abstained from table fellowship and that you didn't eat at the celebrations that you did go to. And by the first century CE, pork is the most uh, popular of all meats in the Roman world, and Jews are not eating pork. Um, again, I apologize to all my listeners who've heard me say this so many times, but it's like going to Philadelphia and saying, uh, in standing on a box in the middle of, you know, Independence Mall and saying, cheese steaks, uh, Philly cheese steaks are the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's garbage. And anyone who eats them uh, is just like a piece of garbage. <laughs> like that, <laughs> that was an insult. It was an insult. And circumcision was barbaric because Greeks uh, believed in the perfection of the body as concurrent with perfection of the soul. These were not two opposing ideas. There was no notion in the ancient world of a blonde bimbo of the more beautiful you were, the dumber you were. That was not a concept in it. In this society, in this culture, you could be stunningly beautiful and very, very smart. And they pursued the perfection of the body and the perfection of the soul. So circumcision was a mutilation uh, that permanently hindered you from achieving that perfection. So there's a lot at stake. So when the Seleucids see these people that are, abstaining from table fellowship, not showing up to these celebrations uh, and not observing the calendar of the empire, but this weird, unheard of seven day week that like nobody knew about. Um, And also- uh, Is that right? The seven day week was a unique aspect of Jewish religion even then? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And actually I recommend Sarit Katan Gribbett's new book on the Jewish calendar, which is really fascinating. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, Came out, uh, I think last year. It's very, very good. Um, but in any case, so when you observe these things, you are preventing yourself from fully integrating into the broader culture in a way that made the Jews um, misanthropic. And that's a Greek word, misanthropia, anti-person. And they were considered to be pariahs uh, by some of these Greek and Romans who were saying, listen, these Jews, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to cling to their barbaric. Barbaros is a, means a non-Greek speaker because um, it sounds like bar, 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 bar. Uh, so they, these barbaric Jews, uh, these misanthropic Jews, they want to be, uh, they want to get all the full benefits of citizenship or participating um, in the empire, but they're also not putting in the work. They are not abandoning their ancestral traditions like the other um, conquered people that we have incorporated into our empire. So Malka, we're getting close to the end of our interview. I want to ask you a couple more questions, though. Going back to what I mentioned at the very beginning of our talk, that on that 1840 podcast where you were interviewed several months ago, you said you didn't like the way people understood Hanukkah, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't have the exact quote. So I understand that you say that people don't know the entire story, but what don't you like about it? What's the problem with the way that Hanukkah is commonly understood and celebrated today? It's a great question. I think that when we talk about Hellenism versus Judaism, we're buttressing a worldview in which Judaism is constantly embattled against outside forces. The fact is, and I'm not gonna get political right now, God forbid, but the fact is, is that it's, that's an ahistorical interpretation of the Hanukkah story because Jews lived comfortably in the Hellenistic world 
from 323 BC to 175 BC, and there was no existential anxiety about living under Hellenism, just like they lived under the Persians and before then the Babylonians, although that wasn't very pleasant. Uh, but the Persians had a good relationship with the Jews overall. Again, as long as the Jews pay their taxes, the Persians left them to practice their ancestral law. And so this idea that we're constantly embattled and every generation they rise up against us to destroy us, I think it... Um, I think that that can generate a certain sense of embattlement that can be deployed to justify an animosity towards outsiders that I personally am not comfortable with. But again, I don't need to go into politics to just say it's simply not consonant with the history of Hanukkah. Okay, then let me ask as my final question, Malka, the reverse. How should Hanukkah be seen nowadays? What is its enduring relevance to Jews living today in 2022? You know, earlier I said, Scott, that I don't think we should care so much about who wrote the Tanakh. Um, I think the important thing is is election, is chosenness, is connection, is God's choosing us, is a relationship. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with Hanukkah. I think that when we think about Hanukkah, it doesn't matter to me whether we're thinking about the military victory or the oil miracle. At the end of the day, what we're celebrating is an affirmation of an enduring relationship that shouldn't exist because it goes against all rationality that we've survived. And the unlikelihood of Jewish survival and triumph, to me, is worth celebration, especially when you contextualize it within the framework of the covenantal promises that are enduring, that guarantee our survival, our success, um, even in unfriendly atmospheres. And so when I celebrate Hanukkah, I'm not losing sleep over whether the miracle of the oil happened or didn't happen or whether the military victory happened the way that one Maccabees tells us, but rather um, celebrating um, and affirming God's enduring commitment to all Jews through all generations and all places um, that enables us to triumph and, and, and in a way that really makes no sense, um, you know, to just to to borrow the uh, very tried and true axiom, the biggest miracle of the Jewish people is their survival. And I, I actually, um, I, I don't think that's trite. I think it's very significant and meaningful. Okay, Malka, I really appreciate your speaking to me again this time and did not disappoint. I found this absolutely fascinating and I'm sure all of our listeners will agree that we learned a lot today. So thank you very much for joining me today in Hanukkah Sameach. You too. Thank you for having me again. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. 
I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>